Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, g'day. Welcome to the Alan Jones Program. Jason Morrison filling in for the last time. Alan is back with you next week. It's been a real pleasure to be here uh, in the big guy's chair again and to get your feedback and your comments on what we do. And thank you for putting up with a slightly different voice for a couple of weeks. But Alan returns next week. Coming up on the program today, heaps, we have an unlikely hero who has blown a great big hole in Chris Bowen's energy lies. You'll want to hear what he's got to say. And the High Court says a terrorist who wanted to kill thousands of Australians here in Australia should be allowed to stay in the country, even though the parliament says he should be deported. But this will get you. Our David Flint says it's a good decision. <laughs> stay tuned for that. You want to hear why. But first, I guess they always say you can't handle the truth. We can handle the truth. And a fair bit of truth kind of leaked out today, very much by accident. And it's everything you suspected all along about why all those major Australian companies and sporting codes and celebrities threw millions upon millions at their yes campaign and the referendum. Why did they do it? And why were they so wrong? Why did 15 of the biggest Australian companies openly and very forcefully declare their hand and their support and throw their cash at the voice campaign and marketing? Why did the big four banks who've enjoyed a period of record profits and dozens of interest rate increases, why did they too throw stacks of cash at the yes hat, many millions and none towards no? Why did they do it? All right, everyone says because they're woke and that's what they do. Well, I actually think it's a bit more complicated than that and it was revealed today. It's not exactly what you really thought, but it is close to what you thought. One of these major companies, BHP, today effectively admitted that it was paying protection money. I'll tell you, they didn't actually use that phrase, 
but what they did say gave the game away. BHP was one of the big donors, $2 million. So why did they put the money up? Well, the shareholders want to know that too. And it's kind of interesting. Obviously, a lot of shareholders want to know it because the chairman of the company has recorded a video that has now surfaced that explains why they chose to back the Yes Camp. And, and I thought we'd get the normal waffle that you get, the sort of stuff about, you know, it felt good and we're going to help people, all this sort of stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> BHP, oh, very different answer. They recorded this and it's got the whole PR touch, including the TV host that asked the question. Let's have a look. Um, maybe I'll read a couple. Uh, Maxwell says, why did BHP support the yes vote? And John asks, why did you only contribute to the yes side and not to the no side of the, of the debate? All right, they must have had a barrage of complaints to do this. So here is the chairman of BHP, Ken McKenzie. Roll the tape. I mean, we operate on the traditional lands of Indigenous peoples at many of our locations around the world. We partner widely with Indigenous communities and have long-term agreements with traditional owners and other First Nations peoples. And these are critical relationships to BHP's ability to start new projects, expand existing projects, and to operational continuity. Okay, let me just stop that there. We'll come back to him in just a moment. Let's stop him. If you strip away all the PR waffle, there is a very honest answer at the heart of this. Listen closely. Listen closely to what he actually had to say. And this engagement that we had confirmed that our Indigenous partners expected BHP to advocate for a voice. And my own personal engagement with the First Nations Heritage Protection Alliance confirmed the same thing. The choice in this referendum was always with the Australian people. But for BHP, the reasons for supporting a voice were clear, and they were in the best interests of the company. The best interests of the company. So they're not talking about Aboriginal disadvantage. They're not talking about remote towns and abused kids or whatever. No, no, the best interests of the company. They paid the fear money. They paid the protection cash. He's too polite to say all of that. But that's what they did. It was a business decision. It wasn't about a marketing position. It was a business decision. And to think people thought they were virtue signaling. This is straight out business. Sorry for the confusion and sorry for the comparison, but it's just like, I don't know, paying the local thugs to stop smashing your windows. That's an ugly thing to say. Yeah, I know, I appreciate it. But that's essentially what their argument is. In all honesty, it's straight out insulting. They're saying that they had to pay this because they worried if they didn't, there'd be a whole lot of people that would come after them. And they feared trouble, so they coughed up. $2 million for BHP is bugger all in a $78 billion turnover company with a profit of $21 billion. It is a rounding error. They probably spent more money than that on, on bumper stickers for the firm. But, you know, here it is fundamentally. Voters disagreed and plenty of the shareholders did too. But the risk of not paying the money must have been too great. So $2 million made sure that BHP would get traditional favourable treatment from the owners of the land in the future. That's what it was for, that's what they said. But he and all the other companies miss the overwhelming point here. 
that the majority of their staff, their shareholders, would have actually been treated less favourably in our constitution if the thing had passed. So Qantas, West Farmers, Rio Tinto, Woodside, the universities, countless local governments, the ABC, SBS, all of the people who donated airtime and money and support for this, the Yes campaign, and the $450 million that the whole referendum and the ordeal cost, could have much easily been spent on actually helping the most destitute and neglected Aboriginal communities. That would have made it look genuine. But I guess when you're making business decisions, genuineness is out the door. And you really wonder at the heart of all of this if it was ever, ever the intention to help Aboriginal people or just to help themselves. So a question, why is our energy so expensive? Well, I kind of always say it depends on what lie you want to believe. Remember earlier this year, it was all about Ukraine. The coal price went through the roof. We were told because the world wanted our dirty, rotten coal to keep their lights on and they were prepared to pay top dollar for it. And so because it seemed like it was right at the time, we thought, well, you know, got to pay it, got to keep the turbine turning because that's right, coal overwhelmingly generates our power. So the coal price that we were paying and the world was paying shot through the roof. What goes up must come down. Let me show you a graph. If you follow the Ukraine logic, the power must now be much, much cheaper. See that big peak there? That's Ukraine. See where we are, $123.50. That's about a third of the price of the Ukraine peak. That's today's price. In fact, if you look in the corner of the graph, it says coal is down 22%. That's today alone. The coal price is diving. Now, I just mentioned that because I think it's important to give this context in a discussion about why our energy is the price it is, and how come we can keep saying things over and over again like renewables are much more cheaper, much cheaper. We'll get to that in a moment. But you know, all the crap aside, it's bad news for the country that the coal price is low. It's our second most significant export, and it's also pretty important. But it would be a bad argument, wouldn't it, if you could say that, that coal generation was still cheaper than all the things we're moving to. And you won't hear that said very often because every politician everywhere says, uh, we've got the report. The report says, from the CSIRO, no less, 97 pages, that windmills and solar panels and everything else they dream up is much, much cheaper than, than the other stuff you're using. So move on, people, move on. If you want cheaper power, get solar. They never say get nuclear, uh, and they say get windmills. And you get the dangerous dreamers like Chris Bowen who keep repeating over and over this, this, this narrative. And when it's the CSIRO saying it, you know, how, how can a bozo like me argue with it? How can Chris Bowen be proven wrong? Well, we're about to. <laughs> because like a lot of things Chris Bowen says, you've only got to scratch the surface a little bit and you find out a bit more truth. And there is a lot of proof in this 97-page document that if you have a bit of science in your background and you have a bit of ability to read through things, you can come up with the answer. So Chris Bowen keeps saying the CSIRO backs up his claim that renewables are better and cheaper and et cetera, et cetera. The man we're about to speak to has found giant holes in some of these arguments. 
And they're in the book. It's not even a secret. You just got to read it. Um, I became first aware of him uh, via YouTube. Uh, I started to get people sending me clips of uh, this young fella, you know, telling great stories about what was going on with our power. And you, you look at it and you think, who is he? And I looked into it, uh, a physicist, a businessman, uh, a data scientist, uh, someone who can read, someone who can actually read. And when you read, the devil is in the detail. His name is Aidan Morrison. Uh, no relation, just a coincidence. Uh, Aidan is, is someone who uh, has a great ability to read through complex stuff and tell a bit of the truth about what's in there. I'm thankful to Luke Grant of 2GB who pointed me in Aidan's direction initially. Um, so I've got him here in our Sydney studio to have a chat about it. Nice to talk to you, Aidan. G'day. Great to talk to you, Jason. Cheers. Now, look, you're not a political person, um, and, and I should ask you up front, are you being financed by anybody for this kind of research, or is this just curiosity? Uh, this has just come out of my own curiosity that I started digging into the gen cost, and it was a Twitter debate originally um, that, uh, that kicked things off, and I just uh, was tired of people throwing this gen cost graph back as a kind of king hit in a Twitter debate, and um, decided that I'd uh, try to yeah, scratch my own curiosity and uh, figure out what was actually in that method that showed such a tiny, tiny premium for the transmission and storage costs when I expected it to be something much bigger. And I just had to read in the detail and I found exactly uh, what the problem was. That's right, because you do think that the turning of a turbine that makes electricity through coal, that that'd be pretty cheap versus all this infrastructure you've got to build, all these wires everywhere, these giant arrays, putting stuff out to sea, whatever thing they can dream up. You'd think, uh, surely the old way has still got to be cheaper, even if coal's expensive. That's, uh, that's exactly the right question to ask, and I sort of ask that myself, uh, you know, all the time. Like, I would be surprised, as much as I'm still actually in favour of trying to reduce carbon emissions as much as we can, if it's, as, as affor if it's affordable to do so, but, um, you know, it's been cheap for years. Why, why should we expect that all of a sudden now there's some new data that says that, uh, that it's become suddenly a whole lot more expensive than solar and wind? Um, so it's a big ask to believe that it's suddenly cheaper than uh, coal and gas. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not supported by the evidence because they haven't incorporated all the full costs, such as the transmission and storage, that they say on the front uh, in the executive summary they have incorporated. So it is, it's just that simple to look into the detail. Now, the executive summary is kind of interesting, and that's all politicians read. They get this report, 97 pages, and they look and they go, right, executive summary, read one page summary of the whole thing. Um, it's the cheat sheet. And the trouble with the cheat sheet is it's as shallow as sheet. It, it actually doesn't really tell you very much at all. Uh, when you dig into this, you start to find out that there are so many assumptions, and we'll get to those assumptions in a second, but, you know, I keep hearing it said over and over again, of course wind is going to be cheaper. Of course it will, because it's the wind, it costs us nothing. Of course the sun will be, be cheaper because it's solar and, and the sun's always there, except when it's overcast and except, et cetera, et cetera. But they always use that argument. And you kind of look at it and you go, what don't I get? What is it we don't get? Yeah, that's right. I suppose what we don't get is the way that we consume electricity, because we don't consume electricity, and I use this analogy in my video, we don't consume electricity like, I don't know, a crop or a plant consumes energy from the sun or rain from the sky, where you can get a bit one hour, you can get a bit one day, you can go without for a little while, and so long as some comes eventually, that's all good. 
We consume electricity as a society much more like, my analogy is here, an animal needs oxygen. You need to breathe it all the time. You've got to have exactly the right amount all the time. And that's the problem with the renewables argument that because we can collect free wind and free solar, it's free in these kind of scattered intermittent splotches and splashes all over the landscape. But bringing it together into that perfectly steady stream that we naturally require to have the right amount continuously delivered to our doorsteps, that's the difficult bit, that's the expensive bit, making it a continuous, steady, controllable supply that fits with all the machinery and all the systems we need in our day-to-day -day lives. And so gathering it in, even though it's free falling around in the landscape, gathering those splashes and splatches in the landscape and bringing it in to be a consistent, steady stream at exactly the times and places we need it, that's the expensive bit. Mm. No, that, that's the base load argument. You've got to have it there all the time. It's got to be able to be switched on and accessed by millions of people all at once. I mean, if everyone wants to watch the, the, the Matildas and they want to have the TV on and they want to have the air conditioning on at the same time and the whole country's plonked in front of the TV watching it, you need the power and you need it then and you need heaps of it. That's right. And it's, and it's even more basic things than that. It's when you go home and you want to be cool and you turn on your air con and you turn on your TV and start cooking your meal. Things like that we do every day. Yeah. They happen all together. And when it's a bit holder, colder, a bit hotter, everyone turns on more air con at the same time or turns <laughs> on more heating at the same time. It's not, it's not evened out. It can't just, uh, just uh, go so we sort of one person turns it up, the other person turns it down to make up for it. Yeah. We all tend to want these things at the same time. That's just how it is. That's funny. I, uh, years ago, and I never finished it, so I'm not going to pretend to be a, an engineer or anything, but I, I studied electrical engineering at university, and we were shown the graphs of power consumption, and this is late 80s, and they used to be able to point on the graph of daily consumption to say, that's when the toasters and the kettles go on, that's when people get to work and turn the lights on, that's when they come home, that's when they, and you can see it. I mean, it's as obvious, it's plain, because we all know our lives. All right, there's, there's the, the, if you want, that's the base load of energy technology here. Let's talk about the, the base load of BS that keeps being served up to the public. <laughs> How is it possible that Chris Bowen, whoever else is running around waving this report and saying, this thing proves that renewables are cheaper than coal and all the old-fashioned base load, including nuclear power. How is it possible they can make that claim and the CSIRO can put its logo on it? What are they not telling us? Yeah. Um, the good news is, is I think that Chris Bowen won't cite CSIRO's GenCost ever again um, <laughs> because CSIRO actually put out another explainer um, statement actually on their website and I think it was in response to my video um, because it came just about eight business days later. And they basically said that all our calculations, the way we did them, where we treated all those pre-2030 investments as a sunk cost and we didn't include them in the cost is because we were only considering the costs from a perspective of a new private renewables investor after 2030. So they've basically conceded the point that they weren't trying to add up the cost for consumers. They weren't trying to add up the cost for society and the public at large. They've, they've now conceded the point. They were only trying to figure out what it would cost for an investor to invest in this new technology, given that the consumers had already footed the bill for the major transmission projects and the taxpayers had already fitted the, footed the bill for Snowy Hydro 2, the major storage project. So I think wow. that Bowen can't go there anymore. I think that it's, it's done and dusted for GenCost itself. They've kind of passed the baton now somewhat to, onto AEMO, but he can't turn around to us and say that it's cheapest because now CSIRO has said perfectly clearly they only said it was cheapest in their eyes for the new investors and they hadn't tried to add 
cut up the system costs that we actually pay in our power bills. So I think, I think it's gone for that one. How he got there and how long CSIRO sort of more or less sat on their hands and didn't mention it when he was more or less abusing their, their report, I'm surprised by that and it's, it's really unimpressive. Um, but I think that the CSIRO one is done now. The, the fight's moved on to the ISP, the, produced by the energy market operator. Right, which is probably based off the backbone of this anyway, the assumptions that were... So, so we're, we've, we've kind of we've, we've jumped off the plank off the back of a report which has been discredited by uh, a man and his computer sitting at home and did a few YouTube clips. And I know you weren't the only one, but that's, that's uh, quite crudely, that's what's happened. Yep, that's right. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Wow. Um, Help me with this, and I, I know they're, they're, we're throwing a lot of people right now, and, and, and analogies are good ways to compare this. So they want to deal with the solar panel like it's out there and, and it's just working and send the cost of energy. Of course it's going to be cheaper once it's all set up. Of course it's, it's all built, it's going to be cheaper to, because there's no coal going in it, there's no ongoing. So it's just sitting there and it's, it's turning and it's glowing and it's producing energy. Um, Let's, let's move this into some kind of analogy so we can, we can sort of <laughs> put the spotlight on the bullshit being served up to the public. Yeah, okay, good question, analogy. I'm not sure whether you've heard one that you're, that you're, uh, that you're fishing for at the moment, but um, uh, I think it's kind of like um, the, the, the solar out there, that's only a raw input. It's like you saying that I'm going to bake pancakes and I've got the bag of flour. Right, it's uh, you need some you need some of the raw energy that's just falling around in the, in the in the landscape. But but getting it to you at the time is like adding a whole bunch of labour to it, uh, and that's what the transmission network has to do. There's a whole bunch of complex engineering to make sure that it has the right sort of inertia, a steady frequency, so that if one thing drops or changes, everything evens out and nobody has surges through their power lines, that sort of thing. So so basically, uh, you can think of um, you can think of like the energy that you get on the solar panel. It's like just the cheapest raw ingredient that you put into the dish you're actually going to serve up, mm. but you still have to have extra labour and extra systems added to that um, to basically make it ready to consume. Like, nobody wants to eat raw flour uh, for <laughs> yes. breakfast, right? So if you want to bake a cake or make some pancakes, sure, yeah. but you've got to have some heat, you've got to have a pan, you've got to have all the stuff to, uh, to make it work, some eggs, some milk, whatever. And so, so I think this idea that we can just sort of cost the, the raw, unuseful input and say, well, that bit's cheap, uh, when you're not actually, you're not, you're not making the cake, you're not actually making, you know, the full thing that you need to consume. It's, it's just silly. It's amazing that it's got this far. And I think a lot of other countries, frankly, have moved past it. There's a much better appreciation around the world for what the total system costs, the full system costs are. And I think that other countries, United States even, have got to the point where they recognise that power that you can rely on, that you can switch on and off, has a very different value to that bit of power that just comes and goes of its own whim. Even if you, can, if you collect it over a whole year, it's quite a bit, doesn't cost much. If you can't consume it at the second you want it, it's, people, people elsewhere get that. I'm not sure why we don't. Yeah, um, I think you can imagine what my understanding of this would be, but I'll ask you, I mean, is, is, is he sinister or is he just stupid? Uh, Chris Bowen? Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, he's, I think he's trying to make that hard to read. He certainly, I don't know, he's come back very strongly multiple times over after I've pointed out the, the issues with gen cost and after I've pointed out um, uh, the sunk costs. And after it's been conceded even by the, uh, the chief energy economist, the CSRO, that they did treat those costs as sunk, 
he has still come out multiple times over and hung his hat on CSIRO and in particular the AEMO ISP. AEMO put out a, a press release that says that they include the whole system costs um, in the ISP, which is just not true. They don't include huge parts of the system, even the most expensive parts of the system. And so he's come out multiple times since it's been pointed out and still written editorials to the Fin Review, to the Australian, basically saying, I trust AEMO all the, uh, I trust the Agencost and the, and the CSIRO, and it's settled. So he's, he's, he's come back multiple times, even though the facts have been on the table and I've put things out pretty clearly on Twitter. Um, so I'm surprised that it's still going on. Um, yeah. I'd rather not speculate on whether he knows what he's doing and he's trying to run with it, or whether, or whether he's just, just kind of missed the point and hasn't, hasn't been able to comprehend. I'm not, I'm not sure. For the well, moment. You know, it's funny, what you don't say is often what you mean to say, and, <laughs> and, and you haven't said it because we all know it. Um, I guess then we get to this this really vexed question, and we spoke about it earlier in the program today about nuclear power. We we have you know according to the surveys, more than half the country now thinks this is a good idea. So people aren't stupid, mm. and and they see what's happening around the world. Mm. And the Bowen answer is it's. I mean, I think it is the most expensive energy option we could put our hands on, or something like that. He uses those 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 turns of phrase. I assume that's all out of this too, is it? Uh, the same report. They they can make the same assumption. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. With the same thing. So what they're sort of saying, nuclear is really expensive because it costs billions to set up yep. versus a solar panel that costs nothing because it's from the sun. That's right. That's right. And there's, well, there's even more in the GenCost report on that too. For example, mm -hmm. they estimate that the uh, the life, the economic lifetime of a nuclear power plant, which often in the States, for example, they're licensed up to 80 years. He said it's the same as a solar panel, uh, or not he, sorry, GenCos, CSIRO, you know, 25 years. So there's there's other outrageous um, uh, assumptions. Hang that on, are, hang on. Uh, sorry, I've got to jump in on that. Because, you know, I mean, my, my, my father has solar panels on his roof. Mm. <laughs> And we look at them and they're, they're, they're kind of nearing their end. They've yep. been up there for a while and they've yep. got to be replaced. Yep. And, and these people have the hide to say that a nuke plant, which all around the world, some of them have been off operating 20, 30, 40 years, that, that, that the life of a solar panel is, oh. <laughs> yeah, is, is, is more or less the same. That, that's, that's one of the assumptions. Again, I think, I've forgotten which page. I think it's around page 70. If you've got the report there, you can look at the tables there. You can read along in your the book. Economic line. Yeah. That's right. But it's, but it's all there. So the assumptions that are built into kind of, um, yeah, the cost of, of nuclear energy and renewables in that report are, yeah. are really not worth, worth hanging your hat on. It's, um, so, Jeez. yeah, nuclear power, everybody, I think, acknowledges it's a very expensive estimate in gen cost. It, it, it it can and should be quite a bit cheaper than that. And that's what is reflected in the power bills of countries that have lots of nuclear power in their system. They don't have the highest bills in the world, they have some of the lowest. Yeah, and, and here in silly old Australia, we're, we're jumping off the plank, um, off the basis of you know this kind of stuff. I mean, you're a scientist, it must kind of disappoint you that uh, this mob have, have done this. Um, yeah, it does, it does. Um, I, as in, I think that they, they could have been so much better in terms of, I mean, the business as usual case, like treating as sunk costs, things that you haven't yet sunk, like you haven't yet built all that transmission, treating it as sunk, I, I don't know how to defend that really. That's, yeah. uh, that's really so unimpressive. But that said, they have at least, in a the, in the little bit of credit I will give to Paul Graham at the CSRO, they've been quick to clarify and honest and confirm that indeed they, they, indeed they did treat it as sunk. So 
That's actually more than I can say at the moment for, uh, than at, for AEMO um, because they've come out with press releases that I can't describe in any other way than being mm. a total falsehood and a lie. So they're still trying to deny and cover up what they've done. CSIRO has at least pretty quickly, and I think in somewhat good faith, exposed and clarified what they have done. And what they have done is not produce the full cost of renewable energy for society and for consumers. They've produced it just for the investor once we've built all the expensive parts. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Amazing. Great to talk to you. And I mean, congratulations on your work and the impact it's had. I kind of wish we'd found you like uh, back before they'd made all the decisions. But uh, <laughs> No, there's it, more decisions to come. There's, there's plenty more, more decisions yeah, to come. There's yeah. more to come. Yeah, good on you. I said at the beginning, no relation. That's true. I wish you were because I'd like <laughs> to claim you as one of ours. Uh, you know, the Morrisons have had a pretty bad run over the last few years. And, uh, and uh, so we, we'd like to have you on the team. But uh, great to talk Thanks, to Jason. you. Congratulations on your work. If anyone wants to read up more on what you've done, tell, tell us where to go. Where do we find more? Sure, sure. I have a quick, my, my handle on Twitter on X is Quixotic Quant, um, and so ch chase me up there. Also, I have a little uh, YouTube channel called Miltech and Tac, one word, M-I-L-T-C-H-N-T-A-C. Military Technology and Tactics is one of my sort of hobby horse areas of interest. Yeah. I've had other uh, things there, so I'm using that channel now to produce these videos on energy since I've just scratched the surface and there's, uh, there's some exciting stuff there. So it's you'll find me, but you can just Google GenCost on, or search for GenCost on YouTube. I think it's the first hit to find that video, so it should be easy to find. <laughs> How ironic. The critic <laughs> is above the original report. I love it. Aidan, lovely to speak to you. Congrats. Thanks very much. His name is Aidan Morrison, and, uh, and that is uh, an impressive fella and great work. Important work for the country. It's, it's funny how, you know, just, just sometimes it happens. And uh, this may well be one of the breakthrough bits of research that has been conducted by an Australian scientist not being paid by the Australian taxpayer. What about that, hey? Across Australia, this is The Alan Jones Show. Having trouble keeping up with the massive load of news coming at you every week in this world? Are you sick of all the woke that comes with the news in Australia? Well, now there's an alternative, The Other Side Australia, your weekly summary show of all of the news of the week without the woke. The Other Side Australia first streams on ADH TV at 8 p.m. every Friday night, then on demand afterwards anytime you want to watch. And remember, all you've got to do is go to adh.tv on any web browser to watch or download the app on your phone and TV. Join us for Australia's best take on the news of the week without the woke, the other side Australia.
Ever feel like the walls are closing in? We've got wall-to-wall Labour governments across mainland Australia. What can you do about it? Well, you can subscribe to The Spectator Australia right now. Get 10 issues for just $10. We'll keep you sane. We'll keep you right on track. Phone 1-800-809-233. Do it now. Oh, yes. That's more like it. Oh, elbow. Welcome back to the Alan Jones program. I think this one is worth putting up on the fridge, this little one. A gentle reminder of what he once said before he was elected versus what he actually does now that he's here. Have a look at that. If I'm Prime Minister, I won't go missing. 20 overseas trips, a trip every month, it averages out to. I won't pose for photos, then disappear when there's a job to be done. Yeah, really? <laughs> you want to see the photo album? Plenty of jobs waiting to be done. Yeah, kind of crucial stuff back here. He says he'll show up, he'll step up, he'll work every day to bring the country together. You are Anthony Albanese responsible for one of the ugliest, most divisive actions caused by a government, by an Australian politician in a generation with that referendum, and you won't divide the country, you'll bring us together. Halfway through your first term, hopefully your last term. Fail, 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 fail. Don't forget that post. Don't you get the feeling there's a, a bit of a recalibration going on in Australia right now? It's very small, it's very gentle, but a little corner has been turned and it's good news. It's been a long time coming. The agenda of the radical left is now so clear, so plain to see, that a regular man and woman can now just see it coming. And of course, it'll take a while for many of the lemmings in the media to actually get it and catch on, but Australians are waking up. I mean, we talked about the strong showing of the no vote. It tells you that people can see past the camouflage of sort of nice gestures out there and find the heart of an issue and rule it out, as they did, en masse. But then there's a sense I'm getting that the other great big lie is untangling fast. Careful weaving of climate change together with politics, with nice feelings and pretty pictures and extra taxes is being summed up in reality of the shocking power and gas bills that we get. People are angry and they're broke. And I dare say a little frightened when you get the Alinta energy bill and you open it up as we do and you go, oh, here we go, what, whoa, what is that? People are not going to cop crap when they can barely survive. It doesn't mean the battle is won, far from it, but it does mean we are turning a bit of a corner here. I wanna show you something. This is some polling from the very left-leaning union strategy machine called Essential, Essential Media. They're an organization that devises the union movement, the Labor Party on a whole lot of things. And they constantly run social polling that flows into the hearts and minds of senior figures in the Labor Party. And don't think for a matter that this is just a, you know, a, another poll. These are the sort of people who help put policy together. And I think what this polling is going to show is that Australians are waking up, have a look. After more than a decade of paying far too much for anything, 
suddenly we get a poll that says, do you support nuclear power? Guess what? The trend is yes. 50% of people in that poll, the top line, support the idea or don't really care. There's only 33%, the red line below it, that actually oppose. That blue line, 50% is huge. And that it is growing and going is telling us that there is something going on in the community that people are actually saying, you know what, risk versus reward, cheap power versus the risk of nuclear, I don't think the risk's that sufficient, let's give it a go. And 50% of people are there and there's a whole lot of people that actually don't care and there's a, a third that think we should not go anywhere near it. So nuclear is demonised by dimwits like Chris Bowen. That's what you're dealing with, Chris. Wake up. Australians are waiting. Now they'll say it's all those right-wing voters, not true, 43% are Labor voters. 40% are Greens voters, I'm not kidding. This is the essential polling, they support nuclear power. Let's move on, another graph here. I wonder how that went down in Chris Bowen's office, probably the same way when they saw this one we showed you yesterday, just really quickly. This is a graph that tells us that people have had enough, enough of doing things for the sake of doing things for climate change. See the top one sloping downwards, it's always meeting up with another one. Not doing enough versus doing enough. They're almost the same. That's a worry because that is going down, down, down. People can smell the bullshit. Another graph here while we're on it. Renewables, good or bad for the economy? <laughs> well, I won't show you the stats. It's too complicated. It's straight out. There's 70% of people said they were worried that moving to windmills and solar would be at the expense of their quality of life. That's huge. It's only 10% of people that say, I want this thing. So the game is up. The logic, it just doesn't work for people. The money actually does. And I've said it many times over the last few weeks, the socialist left mantra has passed its high point. And the Liberal Party would be very wise to take notice and shake its mindless commitments to so-called net zero and have a look at what's out there. Look at the data, look at the nuclear commitment. Look at what people are saying and what they're paying. To some news of the day today, and the High Court has decided, in its wisdom, to allow one of Australia's most infamous convicted terrorists, Algerian-born Abdul Naka Bembruka, to have his citizenship restored to stay in Australia against the cancellation that the government put place after he was found guilty. Now, what was he found guilty of, this great Australian? Found guilty of a terrorist plot to blow up the MCG. He wanted to target it on grand final day and was in advanced stages of planning to do it. And his plan was to kill thousands of people, mass casualties. Back then, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison but remained in custody on a continuing detention order for three more years. And in 2020, when Peter Dutton was the minister responsible for Homeland Security and Affairs, he cancelled his citizenship. He did it because he was allowed to. He basically said, Bowen, uh, Dutton, back to where you came from, mate. Now today, the High Court, in a split decision, but 6-1, so a fairly comprehensive result, found that the law was wrong, the law was invalid. And they said, this bloke can stay. 
He can have his citizenship. He is now set for release, set the calendar around about Christmas. Now, I mean, you look at this and you say, well, um, I'm sure that the wonderful judges of the High Court probably don't want him living next door to them. Good chance they won't be. But the whole point of this is these laws are put in place, are they not, by the parliament to protect Australia and you have an avenue to get rid of a piece of, you know what, that you don't want here anymore and you can do it legally. They tried to do it. The High Court said they were wrong. Now, we always like to bring you different points of view, so here's one. We spoke to Professor David Flint from the ADH team. You know his background, a professor of constitutional law, no less. It's a surprising chat. David Flint, good to talk to you again. It's delightful to be here. Very nice to speak to you, Jason. Thanks, David. You'd appreciate that right now today there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, saying what right if that's the word, does the High Court have to overrule the Parliament of Australia's will? And it decided that people who commit these things and the ministers made the assessment can kick out of the country. What right does it have? I, I know the answer is every right, but let's answer to that. Well, I think we have to go back several hundred years. And it's our system, our unique system of government, which Montesquieu praised. He thought he was lavish in his praise, and that is that the English discovered the separation of powers. And this is very important in a democracy. Uh, you're, you're far too young to remember, but I can remember when Sir Robert Menzies quite legitimately tried to pass legislation to outlaw the Communist Party. And there was very good reason to do this, because mm. the Communist Party was really acting as the tool of the Soviet Union, and they were very hostile to the West. The point is, we must have a we must have a legal system, a constitutional system, in which the politicians do what the politicians uh, intended to do. That is, legislate and uh, carry on the executive, but they don't take over the judicial function. The fact that we have a separation of powers. The fact that we have courts and courts are there to do certain things and only courts may do them is very important to us. This will become crucially important when and if the Albanese government, for example, passes their completely outrageous misinformation and disinformation bill. Because that, as I read it, that is designed to give judicial powers to ACMA. ACMA is a, an oh, yeah. agency of the government. And this is bad. Yeah. We must have a situation in which only courts exercise judicial powers. But, but if I can Not jump in, court. David, on, on that, I think that the parliament, and it was the will of the people, and I'm, I'm pretty certain it was pretty well supported, the ability to imprison people who commit acts of terrorism and then at the end say, well, you are from another place and you came here and you're enjoying Australia's uh, liberties and freedoms and we don't want you here anymore, so, you know, P.O. I mean, that was essentially the intent of the law and that's what, what Dutton actually did back when he put the order in place that this fellow should be deported. Why, I, I understand your separation of powers, but but. How does this corrupt the separation of powers? Um, th this is a minister doing something he has 
the authority to do by the, the enacting of law from the parliament. And I, I understand that the High Court probably thinks that it's its job to go through and scrutinise that versus the founding basis of our system. But, you know, the parliament decided. The parliament decided that the parliament in our system is not all powerful. There are restrictions mm. on the parliament and they are set out in the constitution. The constitution sets up the separation of powers. And what the parliament has tried to do is to exercise or have the executive exercise what is essentially a judicial power. Now, it's exercise in this case, I suspect, most of us would agree, was entirely justified. It's just that the parliament went about it the wrong way. They designed the, the law wrongly. It should have been left to a court yeah. to decide whether somebody should lose their citizenship of Australia. So why wouldn't Having they have done that? Is it just sloppiness or, or is there a reason why they couldn't say, uh, you know, threaten to blow up and kill thousands of citizens, you'll do 20 years jail and then if you are a non-citizen you'll be deported? Is that what they failed to do? I, what they failed to do was to give this power to a court to decide, to yeah. set out the criteria for the removal of citizenship of a dual citizen and set that out in the legislation so that the judge would decide that matter or a jury would decide that matter. It, it is wrong that such matters be decided by the politicians in the same yeah. way that the court in 1951 decided that it's not for the politicians to dissolve a political party because they could then turn around and dissolve the country party or the Labour Party. We don't want a situation where... where the administrators, the executive, can decide that somebody who has dual citizenship should lose that dual citizenship. But can, can I ask, is, is this because, and probably rightly so, the political class, and, and frankly a lot in the public, don't necessarily trust the judgment of the judiciary? Um, and, you know, there have been countless examples of that historically where you sort of expect people will do time for things and they don't do any time at all because, you know, you happen to get Magistrate Pat O'Shane sitting on the bench that day and, and she thinks that the person's a victim of society and then should walk. And so you have this situation where you say, well, the only way around this is that we have sentences that say a person who commits the following crime gets this sentence or greater. And that's how you work around the soft touch magistrate. Now, I know we're not talking magistrates here, we're talking a much more superior court. But um, mm. is, is our problem that the political class don't think the judiciary takes seriously enough these matters? And, and, and accordingly, uh, if we leave the judgment to someone who, and, and you know, there are some, I say this respectfully, with utter disrespectful tone, freak shows on the bench, that they will have some fairly strange views of the world. Well, when you look at appointments to the High Court, for example, most of the appointments to, to the High Court have been judges who tend to favour, without any maliciousness on their part, they tend to favour the centralisation of power. And you would have thought that coalition governments, for example, would not have appointed such judges. You may remember many years ago, they, there was an enormous fuss over the WIC judgment. That was yeah. a judgment in relation to native title. Now, native title was created by the High Court, but then uh, put into legislation by the federal government. But 
there was a great move then to appoint someone who was a conservative judge and they appointed the most federalist judge we've had in Australia since uh, the, the first uh, the first 10 years of the High Court and the coalition has not paid sufficient attention to the appointment of judges who have a strong view in relation to the Constitution. Now this is another issue. This is whether whether the executive should be exercising what are essentially judicial powers. And this is punishing somebody for a breach of the law. And this is really a matter for the courts and not for the executive. In the same way that the High Court told Sir Robert Menzies in 1951, no, in peacetime, you can't dissolve the Communist Party. That's not a matter for you. Yeah, right. Okay. So I guess I, uh, we finished this discussion almost um, perhaps back where we started. I mean, I feel, fear, I guess is probably a better word, this is a bad, bad day for the country and a good day for the law. Is, is, that, is that simplistic? Well, of course, once you have a law in place, and this would have happened with the voice. A lot of people said, oh, no, the High Court won't, uh, they won't act on it. There won't be a lot of cases. There was going to be an enormous amount of litigation on this. Fortunately, we, the people, decided not to go ahead with the voice. That was a good thing because it would have produced far too much litigation. It would have been stuck forever in the courts. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a good thing to have lots of cases tied up in the courts. But I think that the... The executive, the Attorney General's Department, might have paid more attention to previous cases in the High Court and instead of giving the power to the executive, given it to the courts to to have and set out the, the grounds on which that should be exercised. You're perfectly right. The legislature quite often can tighten the law in relation to the allocation of punishment in relation to crime. There's no reason why they couldn't have tightened this. And it really is a matter for the for the legislature to correct what what, what is an, an error by the legislature. Now, I think we have to look in the longer term and we have to look, for example, at the misinformation bill. Yeah. I, I think it's very important that the High Court intervene if the misinformation bill is passed and take the same attitude in relation to determining what is misinformation, what is disinformation. It's not for ACMA. This is a judicial function, I would argue, and I do hope that in future the High Court takes that view if the government is so foolish as to pass this legislation. Fingers crossed. Best outcome would be get rid of the terrorist and get rid of the misinformation, and it's a, a, the daily double. Hey, great, great to speak to you, and, uh, and, you know, I like seeing your stuff on ADH, so it's uh, sort of good to catch up again. David, all the best. Thank you. That's David Flint across Australia. You're at The Alan Jones Show. Well, that is our few weeks together. Thank you very much for your company. Alan Jones returns next week in the same spot on this very station. And uh, you can catch up with all that Alan's had to, to do over the last couple of weeks. And there's plenty to see as well on our website over the weekend if you happen to be catching it. Look up the ARC conference, ARC conference. You'll see it on the ADH TV website where you can catch some of the greatest conservative speakers in the world all in the one space, exclusively on our website. Thank you for your company. I'm really flattered that Alan's given me the chance to do this. And I remember when this all started uh, back in December of 21. There he is at the launch. 
the press loved the photos of Alan. He's an animator sort of fella. And uh, he walked into this room and I was sitting up the back and I, and I said, geez, mate, this is big. You're going it alone. And he said, I have no idea how this is going to go, but I'm going to give it a go. And he did, and I can tell you the results are very successfully. I've been blown away by the number of comments, criticisms, views of the program we've done. And I'm just filling in for the great man, Alan Jones, who returns. Thank you very much for your company. Stick around. We have The Spectator TV up next. Jason Morrison is my name. You can catch the podcast and we'll see each other around somewhere, I'm sure. Till next time. Catch you later.